Steve Harmon is in a lot of trouble. They say you get used to being in jail, but I don't see how. Every morning I wake up and I'm surprised to be here. If your life outside was real, then everything in here is just the opposite. We sleep with strangers, wake up with strangers, and go to the bathroom in front of strangers. They're strangers, but they still find reasons to hurt each other. He's in jail, accused of participating in a robbery that resulted in a murder. He's just a boy. But even his lawyer has doubts about his innocence. Miss O'Brien looked at me. I didn't see her looking at me, but I knew she was. She wanted to know who I was. Who was Steve Harmon? I wanted to open my shirt and tell her to look into my heart to see who I really was. Who the real Steve Harmon was. That was what I was thinking about what was in my heart and what that made me. I'm just not a bad person. I know that in my heart, I'm not a bad person. But his innocence? That's up for debate. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. This episode is devoted to Walter Dean Meyer's novel, Monster. It's about a young boy who's on trial in a murder case. Sadly, Walter passed away in 2014 at the age of 76. We're going to hear all about him from his longtime editor, Phoebe Ye. There isn't anything I love to do more than to talk about Walter and Monster. (laughs) I'm very attached still. The book is written like a script for a movie and is interspersed with diary entries. Phoebe says when Monster came out in 1999, its subject matter and format really made it stand out. I think Monster was one of the first of its kind. Like, before, you just didn't do that with novels. We'll also hear from author Tiffany D. Jackson. She wrote the book Allegedly, which, like Monster, examines the criminal justice system through the eyes of a child. She says Walter Dean Meyer's classic remains as relevant as ever. You read Monster, you never forget what the children are going through and the horror that they're going through. You never forget it once you actually read the story. It changes you completely. Let's take a quick break, and we'll return to the story. We here at Remember Reading just wanted to take a moment to extend our gratitude to all of you out there for your love of the podcast. Your reviews and ratings mean so much to us, and they really help new listeners find the show every day. And I just wanted to share one with you right now. This is from L. Hesterman. Listen to this wonderful Kidlit podcast. Hands down, this is my new favorite Kidlit podcast. It features classics, new works, author interviews, inspiration, and helps me build a great display. I'm so happy to see these retro reads being celebrated. Thank you so much, Reading Pod. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. It really means a lot. And if you haven't done so already, please keep the reviews coming on Apple Podcast. We may feature you in our next newsletter or episode. Okay, let's get back to Monster. The main character is 16-year-old Steve Harmon. When the book opens, he's in jail, awaiting trial. Here's a clip from the audiobook. The best time to cry is at night, when the lights are out and someone is being beaten up and screaming for help. That way, even if you sniffle a little, they won't hear you. If anybody knows that you're crying, they'll start talking about it, and soon it'll be your turn to get beat up when the lights go out. The section is written like Steve's diary entry, 
It's in first person and hops around, from events he's witnessing in the jail to his own thoughts and feelings. Even the typeface looks like a boy's handwriting on the page. Sometimes I feel like I have walked into the middle of a movie. It is a strange movie with no plot and no beginning. The movie is in black and white and grainy. Sometimes the camera moves in so close that you can't tell what's going on and you just listen to the sounds and guess. This isn't like other prison movies, Steve writes. He says it's about, quote, being alone when you're not really alone and being scared all the time. Maybe I could make my own movie. I could write it out and play it in my head. I could block out the scenes like we did in school. The film would be the story of my life. No, not my life, but of this experience. I'll write it down in the notebook they let me keep. I'll call it what the lady who is the prosecutor called me. Monster. When Steve's trial starts, the format changes from a diary into a movie script. The font in those sections looks like it was written on a typewriter. Take this excerpt here with Steve and his lawyer, Kathy O'Brien. Another voice reads the scene, headings and actions. The fear is evident on Steve's face. People are getting ready for the trial to begin. Kathy O'Brien sits next to Steve. How are you doing? I'm scared. Good. You should be. Steve, let me tell you what my job is here. My job is to make sure the law works for you as well as against you and to make you a human being in the eyes of the jury. Your job is to help me. Any questions you have, write them down and I'll try to answer them. What are you doing there? I'm writing this whole thing down as a movie. Whatever. Make sure you pay attention, close attention. Walter's editor, Phoebe Yeh, says she remembers receiving the original manuscript. He came in to see me and he said, well, you know, I'm interested in screenplays. I bought one on the street, Harold and Maude, and I thought, oh, I love Harold and Maude, but ooh, screenplay, uh-oh, not sure. And a number of us read Monster, and it was pretty revolutionary. And I will not lie, some of the readers were not sure about the story, the format. Nobody had seen anything like it. But I loved it. So she took it on. It was the first young adult, or YA, book that Phoebe edited. Steve is writing the play about him himself, which I thought, oh, that's so teen, you know? And also, he is in so much trouble, and he has no clue, which I thought was very, very YA. And the truth is, you know, kids do read plays, especially in middle school and high school. It's just that no one, I think, before Walter thought of, like, let's write the whole book that way. Walter's idea to write the book as a script came from conversations that he had with incarcerated men. He'd gone to college later in life, in his 40s, and one of his school projects was to interview prisoners. He noticed that when he was talking to the men about their childhood, books, music, or whatever, it'd be a regular conversation. But when talk turned to their crimes, something switched. Once they start talking about the crime for which they were convicted, it's like they're talking about another person, and they're talking about 
themselves in the third person. Like, they sort of compartmentalize. And he said, you know, in Monster, I'm exploring a teen who has definitely witnessed a crime and maybe had a bit of a role, and he is in jail because his parents don't have the money to make bail for him, and he's not sort of realizing that his behavior may have in some way led to his current situation and that he made some decisions. By presenting the trial as a script, the reader really gets a sense that Steve is watching his own trial as if it's happening to someone else. He's a stranger looking in on his own life. That facade only breaks in the diary entries themselves. I looked over the movie again. I need it more and more. The movie is more real in so many ways than the life I'm leading. No, that's not true. I just desperately wish this was only a movie. Monday is the state's case. This is what Miss O'Brien said. Monday they bring out their star witnesses. The toggle between the disattached script voice and the more intimate diary voice makes Steve's conflict come to life on the page. It made the story experience that much better. You know, it it wasn't just like reading a prose book. It was literally an experience. This is writer Tiffany D. Jackson. She picked up Monster when she was in college at Howard University, studying film. The cover caught her eye in a bookstore. It's a mugshot of a boy. Inside, more photos of him, scrapbook style. Those elements were actually designed by Walter's son, Christopher Myers. But It was the book's layout as a script that really piqued her interest. I was just starting Script 101 in my sophomore year. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Once she started reading the book, she couldn't put it down. In part, it was because she really related to it. In high school, her parents had moved her from urban, diverse Brooklyn to Westchester, a primarily white area outside New York City. On her first day of school... Girls were bombarding her with a lot of questions. Have you ever been to jail? Did you smoke pot? Uh, Did you ever steal a car? And my answers were so basic because I was like, why would I steal a car? My dad has a car. And then it wasn't until like later on in the evening that I was getting ready for bed. I was like, oh, my God, they are totally playing me. And it's just this sort of daily, the microaggression that I dealt with, even from teachers, just having to unprogram their vision of what a Black girl should look like and be like. Like Steve in Monster, Tiffany felt less than human in the eyes of her classmates. They assumed that I was going to be all hood and ghetto or all these kind of like words for them versus I was a bit of a like a book nerd and a writer nerd and I didn't fit what they saw on television. And so they very much disregarded me because I wasn't the toy, the fun toy they expected. Similar to Steve, Tiffany sought solace in writing and making movies as a way to separate herself from her own situation. So I think I identified so much more with this book, not only because this kid, a city kid, also just being accused of something, but also just opening up the doors of that type of narrative, escaping just your reality by diving into your creativity. But Monster also gripped her because of how intense it was. I felt like I was 
sitting right there in the courtroom. And there's such vividness to all of his writing. Tiffany says Walter got everything right. That's what I really loved about this book, how he really captured kid logic, kid vernacular. There were definitely scenes where I was like, yeah, Harlem Kids sound exactly like this. There was such truth to this book. It was utterly believable, everything about it. And so I think that was also another part of the writing genius within this. Interestingly, Tiffany's also really into horror. You experience way more emotions in horror than you do in any other category. And so I suggested to Tiffany that Monster, you know, with its emotional intensity throughout, is a little like horror. She agreed. I mean, yeah, nothing is more horrifying than real life. Monster is, in a lot of ways, brutal. Steve is 16 years old, just a boy. And he's dealing with a very serious crime. In jail, he witnesses some disturbing events. I asked Phoebe, Walter's editor at the time, whether that brutality was something she tried to temper to make it more digestible for readers. And she said that it was definitely something the publisher considered. Here she tells an anecdote about Bill Morris, the head of school and library marketing at the time. Bill was a huge, huge, huge fan and supporter of Walter's work. And of course, he read Monster in an early stage. And he came to me and he said, well, Phoebe, you know, Walter wrote about it in a very um, subtle way, but there is a rape in jail. And I said, you know, that might make it harder for this book to be included in school libraries or, you know, a classroom read. I said, oh, I'll, I'll talk to Walter about it. And uh, I did, and he said, I can't, we're not removing it. I said, fine. Because, like, the kids need to know, right? Walter used to go to court a lot. He'd sit and listen and take notes. Pieces of Monster came from those experiences and his interviews with prisoners. He wanted to take real problems seriously. And he thought his readers would recognize any attempt to sanitize the world he wrote about. It was a respect for what he observed as well as his readers. He would talk very, very passionately that he didn't always have the books that he needed growing up. And that was his mission to write books that he thought kids needed to read. And he was. I admit, very, very focused on boys because he felt that boys were readers too, but there weren't always the books. Walter's own life helped shape his writing. He was born in West Virginia in 1937. His mother died when he was two, and he was raised by a foster family in Harlem in New York City. His mother read to him from a young age, mostly romance novels. By the time he was five, he was reading to her. He'd bring home books from the local library in a paper bag so people in the neighborhood wouldn't make fun of him for carrying around books. He went to elementary school and middle school in his neighborhood, tested into Stuyvesant, got in, went, but during his high school years, started to feel a little bit demoralized about 
well, I want to be a writer, but I don't see any writers around me. And he actually dropped out of high school. Walter enrolled in the Army. And after the Army, he started writing again for magazines. In interviews, he said that a turning point for him was coming across a short story by James Baldwin about the Black urban experience. He wrote, quote, It gave me permission to write about my own experiences. Somehow, I always go back to the most turbulent periods of my own life. I write books for the troubled boy I once was and for the boy who lives within me still. Phoebe and Walter worked together on many books after Monster. At one point, they were talking multiple times a week. So she got to know him pretty well. He had a great sense of humor. I would say it was sort of like a more wry sense of humor. He was like this gourmet cook. He made pate from scratch for his cat. He played the flute. He was a composer. He's a diehard Knicks fan. Phoebe says he'd usually spend a month in London where he'd do research, but also go to the theater. He's known as one of the best writers of dialogue in the business. And I think it's because he went to the theater as much as he did. Another memory is the discipline. He wrote five pages every day at the crack of dawn, and then he would do other things. But that's it, five pages. He was interested in his roots and was able to trace his family's origins. He also collected photos. A lot of them were of African-American children. Um, Just beautiful, beautiful children. We didn't know who they were, but he would write about them. And he wanted to give them some humanity, some dignity. He just, I just loved him. Phoebe says Walter was very generous. People in prison would send him their manuscript. At that time, they didn't have access to a typewriter. He would hire somebody to type their manuscripts so they could see what it looked like. It's unbelievable. He would pay, he would find booksellers and he'd say, you know, I want to pay boys to read books because I believe it's so important. And if that's the way to help them understand the importance, you know, like who does that? Of course, in addition to all that, Walter is a decorated writer. Among many other awards, his achievements include two Newbery Honor Books, three National Book Award finalists, and six Coretta Scott King Award or honor-winning books. He served as National Ambassador for Young People's Literature from 2012 to 2013. His slogan was, Reading is not optional. Walter died in 2014. The last thing he published was an op-ed in the New York Times in which he called for more books featuring diverse characters. Books transmit values, he wrote. They explore our common humanity. What is the message when some children are not represented in those books? Where are black children going to get a sense of who they are and what they can be? Monster, meanwhile, continues to reverberate with readers and writers. For Tiffany D. Jackson, Monster is a true classic. I think classics are almost like the first of their kind. Monster was definitely just the first of its kind in a sense. No one was really writing from the point of view of a child during his trial. You always refer back to Monster. I mean, and I definitely do. 
Tiffany's book, allegedly, clearly channels Walter's monster. It's about a young girl named Mary Addison who is convicted of killing a baby. Her inspiration was actually a real case that she had read about. Back in August of 2012, I recently like was going through a breakup. And I was up late at night eating chocolate, listening to Beyonce, as you do. And I stumbled across this article of this girl, this nine-year-old girl, who was being charged and convicted of murdering a three-month-old baby. And this was a case that happened in Maine. And I just was so fascinated by the idea of a nine-year-old being charged because she was the youngest person in the state and one of the youngest persons in the country to be charged with that type of murder. And I sort of became fascinated with it, like, you know, God, what's going to happen to this girl? She wrote the first skeleton draft in the midst of Hurricane Sandy. And there's actually a scene that captures the chaos of that storm. Then she started researching, talking to lawyers, doctors, psychologists. And like Walter, she also talked to people who had gone through the justice system themselves. I ended up interviewing five girls who had been to the juvenile justice system or had lived in group homes because I wanted to get the actual experience from the child's perspective. So I interviewed these five girls and I basically took all of their stories and I put them into one character named Mary. So every story you actually read, every incident that happened in that book was actually something that happened to a girl who I interviewed. In the first draft, Mary was quiet, shy, and sad. After these interviews... Tiffany changed the voice. The five girls that I interviewed, they all had this cadence about them, this voice of just utter indifference. And I think it was sort of a shell and somewhat to protect themselves. And I kind of changed Mary's voice to that. But then when I changed it, when I sort of like brought it back down to just this sort of monotone voice, it really kind of made the book come alive. Because it's true, you talk to a lot of kids and they have this mindset or veneer of indifference, but they actually are hurting. There is pain there, and it's just not something that they are willing to show you. The interviews she did were gut-wrenching. The girls talked about sexual assault, violence, and neglect in the justice system. At times, she just had to stop taking notes and listen, really listen to them, and be a witness to their stories and their hurt. She revised her manuscript while working a full-time job, too, in TV production. I used to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day, and I would work on my novel. I would go to work. I would work on the train, on the subway as well, too. I would print out drafts and scribble on them, and I would sometimes work during my break. Sometimes when I was still on set, I would work on my novel. Something the girls all said to her during the interviews, really kept her going. They all said that if she included the stories that they shared as part of Mary's experience in the novel, that it won't be believable. They didn't believe me, so they're not going to believe you. And that just sort of lit like a fire under me. Like, no, I need to get this story out. I need people to understand because I had no clue. I, as an adult, a full-grown adult, had no clue that this is things that are happening currently in our justice system. And that was something that was really important to me for to actually truly get the story out. Like Walter, Tiffany didn't want to make her story cleaner than real life. I made the book pretty gut-wrenching from top to tail because 
I particularly wanted people to remember this story and remember that it's basically inspired by true life and that these things are happening even today. I want them to remember these girls when the first time they get to vote on a policy that may affect the juvenile justice system or how they could get involved by going to community board meetings and just be involved in actually saving these girls. Both Walter and Tiffany wrote fiction, but their novels tell truths with a capital T about the criminal justice system and how it really treats young people. Neither writer let their main characters off easy, either. Steve in Monster and Mary in Allegedly are unreliable narrators. The reader doesn't know right away what actually happened, who is lying and who is telling the truth. Instead, the implication here is that it shouldn't matter. Even if they are lying, the writers suggest, they're still worthy of empathy. There's not one human being on this earth planet who has never made a mistake. And particularly with kids, we do need to give them the chance to grow and also have second chances. That's a huge part of the theme of this book and the monster. The kids who unfortunately commit crimes are just thrown away so easily rather than actually sit down, talk, and actually get to the, like, the meat, the bones of why they feel that they have to do what they have to do. And typically, it's not just because they're poor or being a bad kid. There's actually other layers behind that. And if we took a moment to expound upon that, I think there would be way less kids in prison and actually in the right facilities getting the proper treatment that they actually need. And so the hope of writing books like this is to lay all the facts on the table. And if you notice, I never really make a judgment call. I let kids sort of make that judgment call. Like, what is actually right here? In Monster, the jury ultimately delivers a decision about whether Steve is guilty or not. But the reader never learns definitively whether Steve did the crime or not. Even in his diary entries, it's pretty unclear on that point. The ambiguity here was on purpose. Walter said, quote, I wanted the reader, given the facts of the case and having the benefit of Steve's inner thoughts, to reach their own decision. In my mind, I was sure of it. His editor, VBA, says that it was the most commonly asked question Walter got from kids, teachers, and librarians. So, did Steve do it? And Walter's answer was, he was there. The book, which is still empathetic to Steve, makes clear that Steve may have made a bad decision. But he wasn't a bad person. And that was an important distinction. So much of Walter's work is about teens who don't always make the right decision. So, so many of the themes are he wanted his characters to make mistakes, but also to learn that, you know, one mistake doesn't mean it's the end of your life. But he also wanted his characters to learn that you are responsible for your decisions and the consequences. Tiffany recalls that the scene that stood out most to her was at the very end of Monster. Steve's verdict has been handed down. He goes to hug his lawyer, but she stiffens up and gives him kind of a funny look. 
Like, this person who's been defending him in court maybe doesn't trust him at all. Doesn't believe anything he's ever said. It's a devastating moment. It was definitely a haunting feeling. The way I read it is, even the lawyer, who is on his side, looks at him and sees a monster instead of Steve. In the U.S., more than 50,000 minors are held in various facilities, from adult prisons to group homes, for involvement in the criminal justice system. Tiffany says she writes so that in the future, when someone looks at one of these kids, they will see the Steve or the Mary instead of a monster. The hope is to really put kids into the shoes of these characters, strengthen their muscles, particularly their empathy muscles. So that way when they do go out in the world, they are far better humans. (laughs) She says books like Allegedly and Monster are trying to make a better society, starting with the kids who read them. And she's pretty hopeful. We are really raising a heap of activists and a heap of compassionate individuals. At the end of the day, I know that this world will completely change once all these kids get into power. With kids, you still have an opportunity to save this world. So you have to just look back at kids and say like, please save us from ourselves. (laughs) Please save us. Special thanks to Tiffany D. Jackson and Phoebe Yeh. For more about Monster, or allegedly, visit harpercollins.com. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D, ReadingPod. Or you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We actually feature them on our newsletter. Which, by the way, if you're not signed up for that, it's easy. Head on over to rememberreading.com, where you can sign up to get episodes, quotes, trivia, and more delivered to your inbox every month. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurov and Stephanie Marudis of Kuvenda Media. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening, and until next time. <laughs>